Hello and welcome to episode five of the Track and Field History Podcast. One of the things that I find very useful for history, especially when I'm looking at track and field history, is looking at the past allows us to have a better idea of how we got to where we are now um, and how things changed, uh, what we might be able to learn from the past about mistakes made in the past or maybe things that were done well in the past that we're not doing now. Um, One thing that's coming up is a very important thing in college sports is that we may have significantly less money to play around with than we used to. Quite a bit less money. Um, Exactly how that's going to play out is anybody's guess right now. But uh, just a little over a week ago, USA Track and Field uh, President Vin Lanana, who's also head coach at the University of Virginia and has been a head coach at a number of universities, tweeted the following. All NCAA track and field coaches should be thinking and planning a fiscally responsible way to conduct our sport. Our student athletes are counting on us. Now, what does that mean? Um, I don't know. That's not my area of expertise. Um, But I can tell you about how college track teams used to set up their schedules uh, in the past when they had a lot less money to spend than they do now. Before that, college track teams usually had very limited budgets, and uh, with one or two exceptions, University of Southern California was one of those notable exceptions, um, many of them were expected to try to uh, create some funds of their own through ticket sales and so forth. Um, And uh, so how did they set things up? How did they set up their schedule? Well, the real answer is, There's no one answer to that because things are very different across different parts of the United States. It's a big country. The weather is markedly different in, say, New England than it is in Southern California and then as compared to, say, even the Pacific Northwest or Texas. Um, And so everybody did things kind of their own way. Different regions had different ways of doing things. out on the West Coast, where uh, from the mid to early 30s up until the late 70s, the dominant program in the United States in all of NCAA was the University of Southern California. Uh, USC Trojans, when they weren't NCAA champions, they were usually second, sometimes as low as third or fourth. Uh, Sometimes they weren't there at all because of uh, uh, suspensions for recruiting violations. Um, But Uh, They were the program that everybody looked to for a very long time. Um, Their schedule was mostly a dual meet every weekend beginning in uh, March all the way until uh, the first weekend in May. Uh, They would run against other universities in California. Um, Early on in the season, they'd often fly to Arizona to take on a triangular against Arizona and Arizona State or maybe one of those two along with somebody else. Um, But mostly they ran dual meets for the entire spring. And then things started, the season would get, uh, begin to change because those dual meets usually, uh, sometimes they would offer up good competition for some of their athletes, but never for all of them. Um, Things would start changing. Um, 
in the early days, um, the Pacific Coast Conference, which was the forerunner of the current Pac-12, um, had two divisions, a northern division and a southern division, because, of course, the distances between those universities are pretty large. Um, and each would conduct their own championship. The Northern Division would actually have a championship meet, but the Southern Division just consisted of USC, UCLA, Cal, and Stanford, and they determined their championship by dual meets. Uh, they just all run each other over the course of the spring, and whoever had the best record was the Southern Division champion. Later on, there were uh, Southern Division championships and then uh, whole Pacific Coast Conference championships. But along with this they would start running invitational meets that happen on the West Coast, the West Coast Relays in Fresno, the California Relays in Modesto, the Coliseum Relays in Los Angeles, and later on, starting in the 1960s, the Compton Invitational uh, at Compton Junior College in the Los Angeles area, which be uh, became for a while, it was the Prefontaine Classic of its day. It was the best meet in the country. It was usually a week before the NCAA championships and would feature the very best collegians, the very best uh, post-collegians, what we now call pros, of course, you couldn't make money uh, from an amateur sport in those days. So they were club athletes. And sometimes they would bring in some foreign stars, such as maybe Peter Snell from New Zealand. And so there was sort of a rhythm to the season. You would start small and build up to bigger and more uh, harder competitions. And then the NCAA championships and the AAU championships. NCAAs were always held in late June, usually the third weekend in June. Why so late? Well, because most universities in America at that time uh, did not run on a semester system. They ran on a quarter system. They would not have their final exams in the spring quarter until late June. So everybody was still on campus for all of that time. If you went to the other side of the country, how would, that, how would things be there? Say, the Northeast. Well, there... Indoor track was a very big part of the season because there were a lot of indoor track meets held in New York and Boston in that area. And a team like, say, Villanova uh, would run a full indoor season in January and February, sending their best athletes to all these various indoor meets that would be sort of like the West Coast meets, they would put together the best club athletes, the best college teams that were available. And then the outdoor season would start much later because it's much colder. I live on the Ohio-Michigan border, and tomorrow we are predicted to have three inches of snow. That's highly unusual for us to have that on April 17th. But it happens. Cold weather happens, and it makes running track meets particularly difficult sometimes. But a team like Villanova or NYU or Manhattan... Uh, they would run a lot of relay meets early in the season. The Queens Iona relays were always held a week before the Penn relays. Sometime after the Penn relays, there was a meet called the Quantico relays held at Quantico Marine Base in Northern Virginia. They would get in a few dual meets, uh, maybe two or three they would stick in in May. And then the IC4A championships would always be the last weekend in May. And at that time, Virtually every team in the Northeast was really what would be called an independent for most sports, basketball and football. Uh, there was the Ivy League, represented by the heptagonal games, which 
was called such because not every member of the Ivy League was a member at the time. Uh, there were seven teams, but that would be your outdoor conference championship. It would be sort of like a mini NCAA, and then a few weeks after that, you'd go to the NCAA championships. What about other parts of the country, say in the middle? In the Midwest, the Big Ten and Big Eight footprint, as we would call it now, they ran an indoor season, but they ran a lot of dual meets indoors because there were very few in the in the 50s and 60s. It didn't really start taking off where you would have these big indoor invitationals all over the country, everywhere, until the 60s and 70s. But in the 50s and earlier, uh, you would have dual meets uh, between a lot of the major colleges in the Midwest because they had larger field houses in which they could put together uh, an indoor track facility. It would be very primitive compared to what we'd think of these days. Uh, Michigan would host meets at Yost Arena, which is now an ice arena for their hockey team, but it was an all-purpose indoor facility where basketball games were played, and you could put down a dirt floor and run track events there. The same would be done at Kansas, Kansas State, and Ohio State, and all in Wisconsin, Minnesota, all over the Midwest. They would have dual or triangular meets through most of the indoor season. There were a few big indoor invitationals, uh, one in Cleveland, one in Chicago, uh, one in Kansas City, but mostly it was indoor duels and then a conference meet, maybe a few big invitationals. And then everything would go to sleep for a, for a while until the weather improved, and then you'd go outdoors. And again, still in the 1930s, the Penn and the Drake relays were usually a team's first outdoor meet. Then after that, they'd run dual and triangulars uh, all the way up until the conference championships, which were in late May. Again, because most of these universities were still in session at that time. The South was a little different. Now, uh, most of the Southern teams that would be now in the Southeastern Conference or the Southern part of the ACC, those universities really were not national powers uh, until maybe the 1960s, late 60s. Uh, Tennessee was the first of those to become a national power for a number of reasons, but one of them was that the southern states were not as well populated as they are now. But another reason is that they were segregated, and in a part of the country where white people are a minority, if that's all you have and those states are already lightly populated, you're not going to be a particularly comp uh, competitive team. Texas was a little different. They, in the Texas area, Oklahoma and so forth, they were fairly competitive on a national level, and they kind of mixed things up. They didn't run indoor track either because it's rather silly to run indoors in a place like Houston or Dallas uh, where it's warm for most of the winter. And they'd kind of mix things up. The first big outdoor track meet in the Texas area was the Border Olympics. Um, there would be other smaller relay meets like the West Texas relays, the San Angelo relays, the Arkansas relays. Of course, the very biggest meet in that area, uh, part of the country was the Texas relays, which then, as it is now, is either in late March or early April. And teams would usually run, instead of dual meets, they'd use, do triangulars or quadrangulars, again, until the Southwest Conference Championships came up in late May. And what all this did was that it allowed teams to spend much less money on travel. Teams would have many more home meets. 
if uh, you see any photographs from, say, the 1972 NCAA Outdoor Championships at LSU, they have advertising on the scoreboard that shows all the home meets that LSU was having that year and the and advertising for you to buy season tickets. Season tickets for outdoor track is an idea that a very small number of universities have these days. Oregon might be one of the few of them. But it was much more common when teams would host a lot more meets because when meets are smaller, uh, you have more meets. How and why did things begin to change? One thing that coaches will point to, or at least coaches of very well-heeled programs point to, is the uh, limitation on scholarships that was put in place in 1978 by the NCAA. Teams like USC, their men's team would sometimes give out as many as 27 scholarships or something like that. Now, the truth is, is that very, very few universities back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s had that kind of money to throw around. Um, when Bill Bowerman took the track coaching job at the University of Oregon in 1949, he, I believe, had just two scholarships to work with for his entire track team, yet he was still expected to field a team that was competitive in dual meets and was able to be able to fill every event with two or three or four athletes. But what really changed was not finances so much as culture. A number of things changed. One thing that changed was the addition of women's track and field programs. And I'm not blaming women for anything. Uh, what I am pointing out is that women's track and field programs simply came from a different tradition. Women's track and field really did not become uh, common and widely held until the mid to late 70s. Most of those programs and most of the people that led those programs and the people that kept participating in those programs grew out of club teams. Club teams, of course, uh, compete in much less team-oriented competition. Sometimes they're very small clubs. The real team to look at through most of college track and field history for women was Tennessee State, the Tiger Bells, um, that was pretty much the only women's college track and field program uh, up until the 1970s. They were small. They might have, they'd be able to fit their entire team in one car that the coach would drive to various meets. And because it came out of a club uh, tradition, there was a lot less team orientation. Women's teams then and now still compete in fewer dual meets uh, than men's teams did. And eventually, men's and women's programs began to combine uh, into a single entity because track and field requires quite a bit of specialized coaching. And so why would you have two different track coaching uh, staffs when you could combine them and then cover more events? Another thing that changed, of course, was how uh, college coaches were selected. These days, if you want to get into college track and field coaching, uh, you're going to just go in, try to get an assistant job right away, maybe get a graduate assistant job, um, and you're just going to begin with coaching, coaching college. That's not the way it used to be. Um, one of the great, uh, two of the great college coaches of all time, uh, Jim Bush and Bill Bowerman, 
they both started as high school coaches. Bowerman uh, coached high school in Oregon for a few years before he was uh, took the head coaching job at the University of Oregon. Uh, Jim Bush at UCLA started as high school coach and then a junior college coach and then a small college coach at Occidental before he worked his way up to the head coach at UCLA. And when you're a high school coach, you have to be able to teach all different kinds of events. And that, of course, is one of the things about a dual meet. You have to be able to cover lots of events. Athletes are expected to do more than just their specialty if you're doing a lot of team-oriented events, whether they're dual meets or relay meets. For example, Bob Segrin, the, NC, uh, the uh, U- Olympic champion pole vaulter at UCLA. Uh, no, excuse me, he uh, was at USC. When Segrin was at USC, he didn't just pole vault. He also ran the 400 hurdles in dual meets. Jim Fuchs, the uh, shot put world record holder for Yale, uh, he competed for Yale in the late 40s and early 50s. He did the shot and the disc for Yale, but he also ran the 100 yards and he would run on sprint relays at relay meets for Yale. And all over the place, you'd see uh, hurdlers also doing the long jump. You'd see uh, competitors really getting out of their comfort zone. And sometimes that would help someone discover something new. For example, Mac Wilkins, who was a discus Olympic champion, he went to Oregon. In fact, he was a roommate with Steve Prefontaine, and he originally came to Oregon as a javelin thrower. It was only after he got to college that it was discovered that his true talents lied in the discus. Another thing that changed over the years was the number of events competed. If you go back until to the 1950s and earlier, uh, the longest event that was regularly held in uh, most track meets was the two-mile. There was no steeplechase. There were only six field events instead of the eight that we have now. There was no triple jump, and there was no hammer throw. And those gradually began to be added in as extra events, little bit by little bit over the years. The steeplechase became a standard event in the late 60s, and uh, in 1969, Oregon had five guys run under nine minutes in the steeplechase. That's because they still ran a lot of dual meets, and Bill Bowerman required every distance runner to try it at least once because that's an event where you really, honestly, you have no idea whether you're going to be particularly good at it until you try it. Sometimes uh, you can find a real diamond in the rough in the steeplechase that way. But the biggest thing that changed, the really biggest thing that changed about the culture of college sports in general, in sports uh, across the board, not just college track or college sports, but all sports, is that the attention changed from being regional in focus to national in focus. Woody Hayes, the great Ohio State football coach who is still revered almost as uh, deeply as Jesus here in the state of Ohio, Uh, He only had three annual goals for his football team. The three goals, year in and year out, were beat Michigan, first of all. Second, win the Big Ten. Third, win the Rose Bowl. How they ranked on a national level, he didn't care about. 
it wasn't important to him, partly because he uh, it was not something that he could control, but secondly, it just was not part of the focus. Look at how you digested sports uh, in the 70s and earlier. Uh, there was very little sports on TV because, of course, there were only three broadcast networks at the time. There was very little offered in the way of cable TV, and sports were sort of a sidelight. Uh, Wide World of Sports came on the scene in the 60s. That was one hour of sports a week. That's all there was. Even as late as 1983, the NBA championships were not live on TV. They were tape-delayed after the late local news at 11.30 at night. And so if you wanted to see sports, mostly you had to see it live. If you, uh, But you could listen to them on the radio, but that was usually only local or regional broadcasts. There were sometimes things on TV, but there was uh, quite a limitation on how much sports was on television. If you're going to read about it, you read it about it in your local newspaper. You might see a summary on your local news. Shows like uh, movies like Ron Burgundy, that's exactly what television news was like up through the mid to late 80s. Every local television station had a sports guy. And very often, a lot of what he did was just report the same scores and the same stuff that every local sports guy and every local television station across the country was doing. Things began to change in the 1980s. The biggest thing that changed was a lawsuit titled NCAA versus Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma. What happened was that the NCAA controlled television rights to college football games. The NCAA limited the appearance of university teams in each season. Though you could only be on TV a certain number of times every year or every few years. Um, That was to spread things around, but the other thing was that NCAA believed their control of TV rights protected live attendance. And to some degree, they may have been right because live sports attendance is is falling every year. But the universities said, well, we should be able to sell our rights. And it was taken to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court held that the NCAA's actions were a restraint of trade and ruled for the universities. They said that they were in violation of the Sherman and Clayton Antitrust Acts. So that opened things up. How did it open up? Well, of course, ESPN came on the scene in the early 80s, and they were hungry for things to be able to broadcast. And when college sports opened up, well, now there's a lot more television uh, money to go around that ESPN is paying to universities. Other things, um, other media, not just broadcast media, but print media became to be more national in its scope. USA Today, the nation's newspaper, uh, came on the scene in the early 80s, and its voluminous sports section covered things on a national level. So how you compared locally and regionally became much much less important in the 80s and 90s, and so on. Even so, there were West Coast teams that did not go to the NCAA indoor championships. 
um, UCLA until the early 90s would always run a home dual meet against another team that wasn't going to go to the NCAAs, like, say, maybe Arizona State. Cal never went until the 80s or 90s. Remember, the NCAA Indoor Championships began in 1965, but when Steve Prefontaine was running at the University of Oregon in the early 70s, he never ran at the NCAA Indoor. He'd run a couple of indoor meets, uh, usually one up in Portland because the University of Oregon wanted to help promote the mate and make sure that it was viable so they'd send their biggest stars up there. But indoor track was kind of a sidelight until the 80s or 90s. It was very much a regional affair. Once everybody wanted to know how did you compare on a national level, much more than they wanted to know how you compared against your regional rivals, then we started getting away from more localized competition and get into national competition. Another thing that changed was control of things. Uh, while going through some university archives, I stumbled across a letter from the Mid-American Conference athletic directors to each other in, a, in an annual conference. This was 1979. And they feared that if the conference no longer required Mid-American Conference teams to schedule dual meets against each other, that their member track teams would stop having meets like that, they would only go to large invitationals, and they that these universities would have few, if any, home meets at all. The truth is, their fears came to light. So the question is, will going to a more team-oriented, uh, more localized-oriented schedule, going back to the way things were maybe 50 or more years ago, will that save money for university track programs? The answer is, I have no idea, but I know that it's what was done when budgets were much tighter than they are now.